It is good. I know I say that every week. It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. I need the body of Christ. I need the corporate worship of you and I here together declaring that our hope is not this life, but the next one. So our sermon title this morning is The Failing of Friends. And I'll ask that you turn to Job 16 if you haven't already. So here's the question. Have you had a friend or someone close to you fail you? That, of course, is a rhetorical question. Because the obvious answer for everyone in this room is yes. Kids, you've had your siblings or friends at school throw shade and prove themselves to be unloyal. Uh, In particular, if you are a teenager, will you hear me out for a moment? It's normal for friendships to be really hard right now. It's okay. Some of you have had co-workers toss you under the bus only to prop themselves up. Spouses here have failed to meet needs and expectations. Even those that we would loosely call friends or heroes, maybe, they have failed us. Poor leadership, dishonest business practices, immoral behavior, self-righteous attitudes, and all of the rest. Our friends and those close to us fail us. And somehow we're continually surprised when it happens. Part of the reason we're surprised is because we're constantly looking Sideways, horizontally, humanly, situationally. We're looking to the things and people of this world to bring us satisfaction. Well, our main point this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ look up, not sideways, for answers. So if parents, spouses, children, co-workers, leaders... Politicians, restaurant servers, retirement advisors, weathermen, and dear friends. If they all will fail us eventually, somehow and in some way, where do we go? Now, the very religious thing to say on a Sunday morning is that we look to God. But what about when it seems that He our heavenly Father and friend, the creator of all things, the redeemer of our souls, what about when that friend seems to have failed us also? What then? Which brings us to our man Job in chapter 16, a chapter that wrestles with the failing of friends. Now, we are starting to get to that point in the book where this all seems very long-winded. This cycle of one friend speaking and then Job responding has gone on and on and on and on. And while we haven't and we're not going to cover every chapter of this book, it feels drawn out. Especially for us as we navigate these long poetic discourses. However, hear me on this. However, the length of the book And these conversations are a form of discipleship to you and I today. How does the length of the book disciple us? Rarely in life does one conversation 
one verse, one friend, one counseling session, or one promise shared. Rarely does it ever, that one moment, wrap up and fix and conclude our situation. Rather, like Job, we're often left with days, weeks, months, even years of questions. And well-meaning friends trying to help us to make sense of this world, our part in it, and what God is truly up to. So, here is Job (laughs) responding yet again to his friends, this time right off the heels of Eliphaz. Job focused his attention on the failing of his friends, and he's falling into the trap of believing two lies. And we'll consider both these lies this morning. First, we have lie number one. My friends are against me. Would you read with me, please, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 16. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the soles of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Well, we start in our section here in these verses with the common phrase in verse 1 that we've seen again and again throughout the narrative. Then Job answered. The ongoing dialogue is starting to read like a Jane Austen novel. And we just want there to be some kind of conclusion, some kind of action. Too much talk. Just do something. One writer suggested that at this point, after all these interactions with his friends, and they've said some pretty silly things, At this point, we would half expect Job to turn around and punch these friends in their face, cover them with his favorite curse words, and do a mic drop as he walks away and he figures out this business on his own. That might read a little more exciting to us, but it's not what transpires. One translation puts these beginning verses this way. I've had all I can take of your talk. What a bunch of miserable comforters. Is there no end to your windbag speeches? What's your problem that you go on and on like this? Job's patience toward these erring friends is running thin, and his language is becoming as pointed as theirs towards him. Look again at verse 2. He says he's heard it all before, their ideas, and in fact they're miserable Comforters. That's what we call an oxymoron. A figure of speech with words that seem to contradict. Let me give you a few examples. Jumbo shrimp. Bitter sweet. Awfully good. Virtual reality. And of course, Vikings Super Bowl. All oxymorons. You see, these friends, they came to comfort. 
That's what we covered back in chapter 2, by the way. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they made an appointment to travel for months to be with their friend. They came to show sympathy and comfort, to rock back and forth with him in the ashes. They came to sit and mourn with him, to listen to him, and to offer words of comfort and love. Here in verse 2, Job says they have failed. Oxymoron, they are miserable comforters. They are actually the exact opposite of what they set out to be. Now, the second translation I read was helpful. And I can't help but chuckle a little bit at verse 3. Is there no end to your windbag speeches? What's your problem? If I was in your shoes, verses 4 and 5, I would do it better, say it better, and comfort better. And immediately, we find out in this passage, that Job and his friends are no different from you and I today. Like Job, we have well-meaning friends who give windbag speeches. We have friends and family who stick their foot in their mouth. We have people who say right things about God, but misjudge and assume on our character. At times, we even have people communicate a right theology to us, but they're jerks about it. Or they needlessly attack us while they spout off and go on and on about what we should do or what we shouldn't have done. And perhaps we've given a few windbag speeches ourselves. And we too have been miserable comforters without realizing it. Now, we've spent a good deal of time throughout the narrative of Job and even, you know, here a little bit this morning in the text. And we've gone through and demonstrated, I think, how these three knuckle-headed friends have got it wrong. But consider with me for a moment where Job is getting it wrong in verses 1 through 6, and where we likely are getting it wrong too. Job is starting to fall into the trap, and maybe we start to believe it, that his friends are against him. All their words, all their airs, their lack of tact, their lack of care, well, it's because these friends are no friends at all. Now, I think we can rightly critique how they've been unhelpful, but at the same time, we have to remind ourselves that we and Job often fail to have healthy categories for our friends and those close to us. Here's what we know empirically. You and I will never have friends that don't fail us. You will never have a human companion in your life that meets all your needs, satisfies all your desires, and provides long and lasting comfort and companionship that you need in life, especially when you suffer. You'll never get it. But our expectations, whether spoken or unspoken, we often don't take this into consideration. When those close to us offer windbag speeches, when they fail us, it rocks us. And we learn yet again that our hope can't be placed in the horizontal relationships around us. Now, we can do our best. We can try to be better comforters than Job's friends, and maybe sometimes we are. But it's never truly, fully, perfectly the comfort that our souls long for. 
We are not meant to be the Savior to one another. And I have a little note written here just to remind me that we need to have categories for grace to others when they try to help us, but they fail and they mess up. When your spouse says the wrong thing, when your friend makes a mistake, when your leaders make a calculated error and a misstep, it's not because they're not trying. It's because they're flawed. And no one in your life is meant to be the Savior to you. No one. Everyone, in a sense, is designed to fail you. Which, as we said, very naturally leads us to the very normal, and I think, Christian response. If everyone fails me eventually, like we don't try to fail each other, I think, but if everyone's going to fail me to some degree, where do I go? What do I do? Well, then, yeah, I need comfort from God. And this is true. But what about when you're convinced that God is no friend either? What then? Consider with me our second point, lie number two. Not just my friends are against me, but I'm starting to believe the lie that my God is against me. Read with me, please, verses 7 through 17. Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach, and he runs upon me like a warrior. I've sewed my sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping. And on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands. And my prayer is pure. Now it may be helpful at this point to remind ourselves that as we've gone through the historical narrative of Job. We come to find out that the book of Job isn't about Job at all. Now Job is involved of course. It's his suffering life that's been documented. But remember back in chapter 1, Satan, this accuser, his accusation wasn't against Job. It was against God. So Satan walked to and fro on the earth, determining if anyone truly followed God and trusted his promises. Did God actually change hearts or was it all a scam? God points to Job. Have you considered 
Job. He points to Job as a faithful example of a follower. Someone who truly clung to God's promises and had a a heart changed by him. So to prove and to defend his own glory, God allows, restrains, but allows Satan to attack. Satan said that Job would curse God. Satan said that God's character and his promises would be proved to be ineffectual. So it was Satan who challenged God's character and the rest of the book. The rest of the book is a repetition of God's character being challenged and misunderstood. So after Satan, it was Job's wife who misunderstood God as she saw her husband suffer. Then it was Eliphaz and then Bildad, and then Zophar, who misunderstood God's character and promises as they attacked Job. Now, we begin to see Job, too, has misunderstood and become mixed up on God's character. Because our man Job has become convinced that it has not only been his human friends that have failed him, but his heavenly friend and father seems to have failed him as well. Allow me again to read these verses, these poetic verses from another translation, and I think it makes it more explicit how God seems to be no friend to Job. Starting in verse 7. God, you have wasted me totally, me and my family. You've shriveled me up like a dry prune, showing the world that you're against me. My gaunt face stares back at me from the mirror, a mute witness to your treatment of me. Your anger tears at me. Your teeth rip me to shreds. Your eyes burn holes in me, God, my enemy. People take one look at me and gasp. Contemptuous, they slap me around and gang up against me. And God? God just stands there and lets them do it. Let's wicked people do what they want with me. I was contentedly minding my own business when God beat me up. He grabbed me by the neck and threw me around. He set me up as his target, then rounded up archers to shoot at me. Merciless, they shot me full of arrows. Bitter bile poured out from my gut to the ground. He burst in on me, onslaught after onslaught, charging me like a mad bull. That doesn't sound like a friend. Here's how one writer summarizes these verses. Job has lost wealth. His health. His children. His wife and his friends respect. The imagery of God choking him, throwing him to the ground, and then having archers use him as a target practice, and afterwards slashing him open in his inwards flowing and his blood flowing into the soil, it's not as exaggerated as we might imagine. Job once had peace and prosperity, but he did not live happily ever after. Since the end of chapter 1, for months, perhaps years, a constant crusade of seemingly cosmic forces have been warring against him. He does not know what to do. He has done what he thinks he should do. He has repented of anything he can possibly repent of. But the sky seems made of stone. 
So Job, our man, like Satan, like his wife, like his knuckle-headed friends, Job is starting to misunderstand and failing to believe in God's character. Ironically, Job's description of God reads more closely to the portrayal of Satan than God. Look again at verse 12. Was it not Satan who broke him apart and seized him and dashed him into pieces? But he attributes this to God. He misunderstands God's character. Here's the question we have to wrestle with this morning. Why did Job's theology, his knowledge and understanding of God, why did that change? Did Job read the scriptures? Which he didn't have, by the way. Did Job read the the scriptures and just come to a different interpretation? No. Was Job swayed by a smooth-talking prosperity preacher, perhaps? No. Did Job start getting his theology from the news and bumper stickers and, and maybe even musicians on the radio? Nope. Job's understanding of God changed when his circumstances changed. As Job looked out horizontally, humanly, situationally, he aimed to read the tea leaves of the events around him, and that told him who God was now. And what we come to find out is that perhaps Job maybe fell into this trap before he suffered. When everything was good in life, Job viewed God one way. And now that he suffers, now that unanswered questions linger for months, if not years, he thinks God another way. Potentially, like us, Job is not as spiritually mature as we first thought. How humbling is that? Now, this isn't no way to downplay his suffering. We don't look down on Job because circumstances have swayed his heart and mind. This is all very much a human experience, even for faithful followers of Christ. It does, however, give us healthy categories. That there are traps and lies that we, yes, Lakewood Church, there are traps and lies that we fall into believing because of our circumstances. For us this morning, this likely manifests itself off the heels of different events in the life that God's given us. Has your understanding of God changed when? When a spouse or a friend dies. When cancer comes. When your friends abandon you. When you don't feel comfortable in your own skin and you wrestle with identity and purpose in life. When your career hasn't worked out the way you thought it would. When the spouse or child you've prayed for never comes. When you don't like who you see in the mirror anymore. When you feel dry or bored spiritually. When these circumstances come, 
when the real earthy elements of life hit on a Monday morning, we gradually, like Job, we begin to misunderstand God. We, we begin to misunderstand God's character and his action in this world because we've put him through the lens of our situations. With Job in verse 7, we say, God is no friend. He's worn me out and he's beat me up. We immediately see the problem, don't we? When we look sideways through our circumstances, our view of God is distorted. And we join rank and file with the other characters of this book who misunderstand God. So how do we correct this? What will give us the appropriate lens and vision to see God as he truly is, despite how life plays out? Well, my friends, we must look to Christ. We must look to the promises of the gospel that recalibrate and recenter our understanding of God, especially in suffering. Job felt like he was forsaken by God. But Jesus truly was on the behalf of faithful followers. Jesus' perfect life. You know, guys, sometimes we think the gospel is just this thing we respond to at the beginning. I said a prayer, I checked the box, I believed in the gospel. Now let's go on to deeper things. You know what we really need to figure out is revelation. Ezekiel, Daniel, we, we need to figure out the mathematical equations to all of Scripture. Or how the New Testament and the Old Testament interact. My friends, there is nothing deeper than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The day Jesus returns, your understanding of eschatology, the end times, he'll be perfect. He comes and you'll say, oh, that's when he was going to come. But you'll spend an eternity of eternities basking in the glory of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important. There is nothing deeper in the Christian life. Christ and his gospel. I got a little excited there. Because I'm convinced that Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, his literal physical resurrection, it has ramifications and implications on our life as we trust him. The Apostle Paul was once writing to a church in Corinth. And they had something akin to trouble seeing God's character and God's promises rightly. Their minds were hardened, just as ours can be in life, especially when we suffer. This church, they saw God wrongly, just as we do from time to time ourselves. So hear his words to faithful followers of Christ who needed a sight adjustment. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, seen, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Let me give you the Reader's Digest version of that. We see that Paul is communicating that right vision and understanding of God comes even in our circumstances like ASAP in Psalm 73. Right vision comes when we behold the glory of the Lord. As we look to Christ, as we look up to Him, as we trust in His promises, as we dwell and rest on the beauty of Christ, only then is our thinking rightly adjusted to understand Him, to be transformed by Him, and to follow Him all the days of our life. Brothers and sisters, in contrast, to our flawed, imperfect human companions and friends, they're trying. But in contrast to our friends who are trying and yet fail us, God will never fail you. He will never fail you even when it feels as though he has. His friendship will never run dry. His pleasure of you in Christ will never sour. There is no condemnation, no judgment, no separation, no abandonment, no revoking of relationship, no revoking of companionship or friendship or status with God in Christ. Don't allow the events of life to dictate who God is. Don't do that. When your vision and your grip grow weak, Look to Christ. Look to Christ. His beauty, His promises, and trust that the Spirit of God will give you sight. And as you look to Christ, even if your vision is faint and your grip is frail and tired, what you will come to see is that it is not us holding on to Him, but rather it is Him holding on to us. We have a powerful and loving Savior. Faithful followers of Christ, we look up to our Savior, not sideways for answers in life. May the Lord help us to be faithful in doing that this week. Would you pray with me? Father, that is a big prayer. And we confess now that we have been miserable comforters and, and we see time and time again the, the flawed nature of the people around us, our, our friends and loved ones. God, forgive us when we wrongly ask them to be the Savior in place of you. Forgive us when we look to the things of this world to bring comfort to us when we know ultimately you are the one that brings it. God, forgive us when we wrongly understand and misunderstand your character based on our preferences, our experiences, and our situations. May our understanding of you and your work in this world come from the scriptures. Lord, when we suffer, it will come. When we suffer, help us to know that you're near and powerful. Help us to cling to the God that we see revealed time and time again. Lord, help us this week to faithfully follow you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.